This is 6.99 per pound. This is an unfamiliar voice doing the intro. Jakey, our lovely co-host, is out today. Should I imitate him? Yo, yo, yo. yo. <laughs> this is 6.99 per pound. Jakey. This is how he talks. <laughs> I don't know if you met Jakey, but that's how he talks. He's doing his side hustle as a wedding MC. So shout out to anyone who needs a wedding MC. If you like the magic of Jakey Cho, gracing all your parents, your grandparents, their kids too. The Holy Matrimony, you can hire him. But he'll be back next week. But today we have the incredible Julie Young, the founder and producer of 699 per pound, and the queen on me, I love to call her. She's filling in for us. For those of you who've been listening to us for a while, you know that we have an incredible team. We have Marcus as a sound engineer, Ken as a producer, Julie is kind of the orchestrator and genesis of this project. And she's an incredible host herself of a web series called Not Your Average, where she's interviewed um, Korean Americans who are doing Not Your Average things for like Far East Movement, Dumbfounded, Aquafina, just to name a few. Justin. Justin Chan, yes. Um, she's also a founder of multiple nonprofits. It's gonna take an hour for me to introduce <laughs> you, so I'm just gonna abridge it. Um, like the Dream Maker, Dream Doer, Dream Supporter Foundation uh, that provides resources, connection, and inspiration for creatives and nurtures future leaders. They're actually launching a film festival this November in Brooklyn <laughs> on November 9th. And it's the first launch date. If you guys are around, you guys can hang out with the 699 team. I could really, really go on and on about my incredible mentor, but I would love to pass it over to her. And she can introduce our incredible guest today, who's also her great friend. Wow, that was, <laughs> wow. Thank you, Joanne. You're that welcome. I'm like honestly pretty buzzed, so I'm pretty impressed with <laughs> I myself know, that I, I, made this, <laughs> I made as smooth as I did. That was very nice, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm actually really excited to be here and co-hosting today because, you know, a lot of times when I'm sitting over there, like, I so desperately want to jump oh, yes. in because, you know, I love asking questions and interviewing people. But it's extra special that I get to co-host for the first time on 699 with my, I, you know what, Malik? My my brother, my brother, yes! the, my brother in the cause, my brother in the cause. Okay, so let me just do the formal intro. Today we are so lucky to have Malik Yoba spending that. time with us. I'm only going to do the beginning. <laughs> he is a three-time NAACP Image Award winner, and he's probably best known for his roles as an actor in the classic Cool Runnings and the hit Fox Tears. television series Empire, and of course New York Undercover. <laughs> Shout out to Michael De Lorenzo on New York Undercover as well. For, so just a little background on uh, Malik and my friendship. We actually did kind of have a run-in back during the New York Undercover times, but Malik have no would not have remembered because I was kind of hanging out with his friend Michael De Lorenzo a little bit. Shout out to Michael. Um, but then fast forward, you know, I would see Malik around Fort Greene and like just whatever in the hood. And then, of course, um, as anyone who knows me knows, I am the founder of a film festival for filmmakers of color called the Tide Film Festival coming up November 9th through the 11th. Plug. This will probably come out after that. But anyway, <laughs> um, anyway, it's a film festival for 
filmmakers of color, and I always had Malik as sort of a dream advisory board member for that, for the festival, because, um, you know, I've always admired your work as sort of an activist through your art. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> although it's kind of crazy because I was just going to reach out to him or just whatever. It's a small world. I, we know a lot of the same people. And then a mutual friend of ours, Julie Chi, happened to take, shout out to Julie, a spin class. And Malik was in the spin class. So fit. <laughs> oh and she sends me a selfie, sweaty selfie. She's like, look who I just met. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, of course, I was like, tell him about Tide. <laughs> so, anyway, fast forward. Dreammaker. She's on her dreammaker yeah, shit. she's That's on my she's board. And, um, and uh, for real, Malik, I really appreciate you being here and also being an advisory board member to Tide. So, You're thank welcome. you for being here. You're welcome. <laughs> I've been worthless and useless, but sorry, I'm here. Well, that was like really long-winded, like opening, right? But well, anyway, <laughs> you could have re- you'd be reading for like five minutes if you read. If that. I did the whole bio, it's, yeah. it's a book, it's a chapter. But you know what? That's what's so amazing is your bio is so impressive because you have been in this game for so long and successfully, mm-hmm. right? Longevity um, for sure, which yeah. is pretty that's, rare. That's what they say. I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so let's start with the genesis. Yeah. You want to start with that, Joe? For sure. So um, you are New York born and bred. Born in the South, though. Yeah, upbringing in the Bronx and Harlem. South Bronx. South Bronx. That's my joke. She she messed up my punchline. I was like, what? People go, where are you from? I'm like, the South. They go, really? South Bronx. South Bronx. Yeah. So so take us to that childhood. Like, what was it like growing up in that area? All right, let me close my eyes. Visualize. (laughs) Visualize. Early memories growing up in the Bronx, born in 1967, South Bronx. Looking great. So, um, you know... Black All I remember crack. is like, <laughs> no, nah, crack wasn't around in the 70s. No, it's a black don't crack. <laughs> oh, black don't crack. Oh, it wasn't oh. around then? <laughs> um, no, uh, you know, it was um, my earliest memories of like living in a neighborhood with Irish kids and Italian kids, Puerto Rican kids, black kids, baseball on Saturdays, um, wanting to be like the older kids, street gangs, bongos in the park. Um, Spanish music. Salsa was just being created mm-hmm. at that point until so you'd have these drum circles in the park. And, um, you know, we were never poor, although we lived in the South Bronx. You know, my father was a hustler, so um, we definitely had what we needed. Um, we traveled, we went on picnics and mm-hmm. road trips to Canada and, um, you know, then moved to Harlem. Uh, probably when I was like seven, um, second grade, I think, yeah, second grade. And I lived in East Harlem, um, first on 96th Street, actually, and 3rd Avenue. There's now a mosque on 96th and 3rd. Mm-hmm. That used to be tenements. We used to live there. And then we moved into East Harlem. Um, the blackout in 1977, I was 10 years old. I remember that vividly, the lights going out while we were playing outside. Um, then we started hustling. Like, there was no electricity, so we uh, carried water upstairs. I lived in a 32-story building, so, um, you know, no electricity, going to the hydrant, filling the buckets of water, carrying groceries up for people. Mm-hmm. Um, had a paper route in Harlem from 8 years old to 16, where I grew up in East Harlem. Wow. Grew up in the same building with Damon Dash, um, actually Dame Dash, Jim Jones, those cats grew up in the same complex. Um, 
I'm giving you just like yeah. broad strokes. <laughs> There's a lot. You asked the open-ended question. Yeah. So I mean, I'm floating. Yeah. So tell us a significant moment in your childhood that may have affected what you're doing now. Seeing Alice in Wonderland when I was four years old. And, on uh, stage? On stage, yeah. I always thought it was Broadway. A couple of years ago, my mother was like, nah, that was off-Broadway. But I just remember <laughs> um, seeing the play and wanting to be part of the magic. And then, you know, growing up in a household with six kids, um, uh, my father refused to put a TV in the house. He called it Idiot Box. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of books. He was a musician. He'd have his jazz friends come over, and they would jam in the house. He was like, create. You know, he always said, build your own generator. So when they turn off the power, you still have lights. Like, that was drilled into us, which is why I had a paper out at eight years old in Harlem. Right? Wow. Um, so I was always hustling um, and never in one lane. Always, like, you know, so I, theater, um, seeing the play. We used to write plays at home, uh, my sister and I. And actually, all through my brother, at one point, it was like the four older of the six. And then at one point, one sister and I used to do it. And then we charge our parents, our neighbors to come see us. <laughs> Wait, so where do you fall in line with the number siblings? Number four from the top. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, man, just, you know, uh, seeing Alice in Wonderland, wanting to be part of the magic, and just having a mother that was... You know, and our, actually, both of my parents were artists at heart. My father was a frustrated jazz musician who forbid us from pursuing a life in the arts mm. because it didn't work out the way he mm. wanted to. He was a guy who came from Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, when he was 15, moved to New York in the 40s to pursue a life as a jazz musician, and it didn't work out for him. Mm. And so he didn't want us to do that. So but, how did that work out if he didn't want you to pursue a creative career and you knew when you were four that you wanted to do? Well, that's the most important point is yeah. that when you're called to do something, you have no choice. So even though – so for me, um, there was always a knowing inside, you know, um, that, number one, my life has meaning and I'm going to do important shit. And so I gave my teacher's monograph when I was 13. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to be famous. You should keep this. But it was a knowing. It wasn't like, you know, it was just a sense of, uh, you know, it's, it's funny as you get older and, like, you actually ex- actualize the things you thought about as a kid um, because you knew. Mm-hmm. And people might have tried to tell you no. And, like, my father used to always say, you know, you always want to take the path of least resistance. Mm. And I'm like, of course you want to take the path of, like, mm-hmm. but in his mind, because of his struggles and what he had to overcome as a black man in America, you know, like my name. His na- he was born Milton Myers. Um, and so as a jazz musician in the 40s with that name, he shows up in a meeting. People mm-hmm. think he's a Jewish dude. Mm-hmm. And here's this black dude showing up. So he took Nature Boy, which was a song made famous by Nat King Cole. Mm. Um and his friends used to call him that. He spelled it backwards, which was Erotan Yob, and he added the A. Mm-hmm. And he gave the name meaning. Yoba means last of the slaves, a new generation. So mm-hmm. for him, he felt, when I have children, this is the name they're going to have, and they're going to have a certain mentality. So although he didn't want us to do certain things, he also put this sense of confidence in all of us that, like, this is my shit. Like, mm-hmm. and I'm not, I don't have to ask permission 
to do things and to be who I'm going to be, even though I needed to ask him permission. So it was like yeah. this, you know, it's yeah. like the Frankenstein. You like you raise the monster, and but so how, know, go ahead. So how did you have that confidence when you were growing up? Like, did you see people who look like you living the dream that you wanted? I didn't really think about that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about I need to see people that look like me, because mm-hmm. it it really it, to this day it, it's you know which is interesting like, um, again that knowing there's nothing to do with color or any of that shit like I've never been that dude and my father was a black nationalist my father's a dude this is your name you're moving to Africa when you graduate high oh school goodness. at 17 you're going to Sudan it's a Muslim country I was born Muslim this is and you know where you're gonna live and how you're gonna how you're gonna live and I was like I got kicked out at 16 so that never happened but um kicked out of the house at uh, 16, yeah. He caught me having sex. Uh, with, with and he that. kicked you out. That was it. He walked in that on That was us. it. Yeah. Dun, dun, you got dun. kicked out. Yeah, with $12 in my pocket, my BMX bike, my guitar, and my backpack. Yo, what did you do? Oh, my God. Call my boy Chuck Burnside, God bless the dead. Um, stayed at his house for a couple of days. My parents separated when I was 10. So six kids stayed with my father. Wow. So he was very, very, very strict. So In Harlem. In Harlem. And so that was one of those... Um, you know, you violated my house rules and get out. But he kicked out four of us by the age of 17. So, like, my oldest sister by 15, my brother at 17, my other sister at 15, me at 16. And it was real. You never went back. He said, you know, I put enough in you that you'd be all right. And it was true because we got up every day at 5 o'clock as kids. Like, being born Muslim, you know, you have to pray at the crack of dawn. So there was no sleeping in. There was no Saturday morning cartoons. There was no sugar cereals. There was like you're learning to cook, to clean, to shop, to sew, to budget. So like my paper out, I'd work every Sunday and deliver my newspapers when I came home. I had to give him the money. And he was then okay, I'm saved this for you. This is what you have, and this is how you live on a budget, and this is how you open a bank account. And so it was real. Like I had my own apartment when I was like 17 in New York. You know, in the 80s. That's crazy. Which was not uncommon in the 80s, like, for teenagers to have their own apartments. Really? Yeah, a lot of my friends. Like, that was a thing. Yeah, absolutely. How did you get an apartment when you were 17? In New York in the 80s, you know, New York was broke in the 70s. Right. So in the 80s, people, you know, it wasn't that hard. If you had the money, and plus I was older, I looked older. People, Mm. you know, Mm. at 15, people thought I was 21. So what were you doing to make a living then? Uh, 17, well, I actually had a girlfriend. My first apartment was with a girlfriend. She was okay. 25. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. She was wow. Japanese. She was a translator. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know what you just said. <laughs> I said, are you Japanese? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, but so then what were you doing while? I had every job. I was a, I was a bike messenger. I worked at French Connection right down the block, right down mm-hmm. the street on West Broadway in Prince. Uh, I, but all the while, you had the dream of being an actor. Um, I had a lot of dreams. I mean, I used to race BMX, so I wanted to like be a world champion BMX. So I played football, I played basketball, like the sports that I dreamt about. The things that was, you know, um, football. You never care about play football, baseball, but BMX. I started racing when I was fifteen. 
and I got into it. Um, and at that time in the 80s, like BMX was not a thing. Like there were no BMX bikes in the street. I saw a kid show up to a football field with a BMX bike and I was like, I want to do that. And so I had a lot of dreams, but theater was definitely one of them. Music is one of them. Um, ultimately, I didn't like the idea of other people telling me when I can work. Mm. So I was actually chasing the music because you can control the music. I could mm -hmm. perform, like right around the corner, a coffee shop that just closed. Oh. They used to have Saturday, Sunday Rest night. Rest in peace like, to the coffee shop, yeah. Yeah, Sunday night live acoustic sets. I used to perform there. Perform in the street, perform in Washington Square Park in the subway, like little showcases. And, you know, so I hated the idea of like, having to audition and mm. people saying you're good enough. I was mm -hmm. like, fuck that. So did you want to be a musician before you wanted to be an actor? Was that I'm your first? I'm just a creative person. Yeah. So my father used to always say you have to focus. Kind of like this conversation. <laughs> I'm deliberately all over the place. <laughs> just dropping like jewels from like different periods of my life. Mm -hmm. But I had a father that said you had to focus. But for me, I said to him, I'm focused on the thing I'm doing when I'm doing it. And when mm -hmm. I'm not doing that, I'm focused on this. And so I've developed proficiencies along Mm. many disciplines so you know whether it's songwriting you know whether it might be poetry songwriting i've written books whether it's you know being a host being a public speaker inspirational speaker being a business person mm -hmm. a marketing mind i've mm -hmm. been part of many marketing campaigns i direct i act you know i i do real estate development i've had a restaurant and so for me um i always feel even though i've done all those things have i done any of them great uh, that's debatable. Um, I've been good at all of them. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, the thing I'm actually best at is the thing that isn't the most publicly known, and that's hosting, mm -hmm. and that's teaching. And that's like, you give me a mic and a crowd, and it doesn't matter who they are, where they're from. They'll move um, I got it. Mm -hmm. Like, whether it's speaking different languages or dialects or music or comedy, like I sent you that bio. Mm -hmm. A speaker bio, and I deliberately wrote that. Like, mm -hmm. it is part preacher, part teacher, part, you know, inspirational speaker, comedian, historian. Um, and that's that thing that I think, you know, has been most special. And I get paid to do that, mm -hmm. you know. Because you were teaching, like, when you were a kid as well, right? Like, in high school. I started tutoring kids yeah. at, at six. I did a lot. Like, it's crazy. When I, got, I was 16 when I did But I did, I was doing all of these things yeah. then. So, like, people say... Well, what would you do uh, if you weren't an actor? What would you do? Like, what's your dream? Like, I've always been able to do what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So when I, I was a bike messenger because I wanted to be a bike messenger. I worked at French Connection because I wanted to work in retail. Mm -hmm. I, you know. So there's never uh, been a time where you couldn't job, do no, what never, you wanted to do? Never. never. Ever, ever. The thing you learn about that is that it's the belief system. Most people have self-doubt. Mm -hmm. There's some voice in people that's telling them, I want to do this, but... Yeah. Right. I, you know, I would, if only I could, my parents can, or I'm not good enough. Or I don't have, I just never really thought that way. I just always felt <clears throat> whatever it is that I want to do, I'm going to pursue it. And like real estate development, I didn't know anybody in real estate development, but then it turns out I did. Like, but as a kid, it was like I'd walk through Harlem and see the burnt out buildings. My father would talk about the 20 year program, for, the 20 year plan for Harlem. Like in the 80s, he was always talking about that. Like the 20 year plan for Harlem. And as he was on a board of a 1199 union that built the place we lived in, which is now called East River Landing. On, if you drive up the FDR Drive, when you get to like 106th Street, you see these tall buildings, they have colored doors 
on the outside. Um, mm-hmm. That's the 32-story building. That's where I had my paper out. Mm-hmm. I'd start at the top floor of this building and work myself my way all the way down. Yeah. Um, but he was part of that. And so when I thought about looking at the ghettos in New York, like, why do people have to live like this? This is some bullshit. Like, it doesn't have to be that. Mm-hmm. Like, these buildings were not built to be burnt out. Mm-hmm. Like, so I, I had a vision for, like, this is what I want to do. And so I'm part of a group um, to have a huge real estate development in Baltimore called Center West um, in the Poppleton area of Baltimore. It's 262 units opening up. We have a ribbon cutting November 2nd. That's next week. Um, I've been part of that project for 10 years. And so that happened just through stating the intention. This is what I want to do and talking to some people. Oh, you should meet. And I'm like, oh, pff, I know that dude from 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's, you know, it's not easy, you know, um, but at 51 years old, there's some things that I've learned. But what do you think gave you the confidence? Like, who helped you have that? Do you think it was your dad? You know, definitely. Definitely part of it. But I think you also come into the world with a certain kind of confidence. that's innate. And I think people can develop it. Um, but we, I feel like you definitely have a higher Yeah, I think a lot of people of don't self. have it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, do you find that people can't relate to you sometimes? Like, when you... When you give them advice, they're kind of like, no, but I'm not like that. Or have you ever run into that? Um, probably. But the thing I, I try to make people mindful of is their language. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I hear people, in fact, I was having this conversation this morning with a grown woman who was like uh-huh. in her late 40s today. And, and so I was trying to, she was saying that she wants to buy me a gift. Right? I've been sort of life coaching her for the last couple of years uh-huh. to a very traumatic relationship. And and she, I never, t- and it's crazy because I actually met her on Instagram. Like she sent me a message on Instagram. And Down in the DM. She was a fan. She said, and she was just a fan. So it started that way. And then she saw me when I was in Korea doing the film. And she asked me to get her a Korean cookbook. And she kept hounding me about this cookbook. And then one day I'm visiting one of the palaces in Korea and um, I'm in the gift shop and I see this cookbook. I'm like, you know what? That fucking loudmouth that keeps... She doesn't think I'm going to do this. And so I bought this cookbook and I sent it to her. Mm. And that started this... Classic Malik. This, this connection, right? Mm. And turned out, like, she's a chef and, like, she's been helping out, like, with my mother who has Alzheimer's. So it's just been this wow. crazy reciprocal relationship uh, of a person I've actually physically met maybe twice at this point. This has been going on for, like, two maybe at least two years. Um, and so um, she keeps saying she wants to get me a gift. And so this morning we were having a conversation. I was like, okay, so I really don't need anything. But at a certain point I was like, all right, I'm thinking about something. Just tell me what you think I'm thinking about. Just to test her to your very point about how we think about things. And I believe that if she focused she would actually be able to think about what I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that because mm-hmm. I've done that with people. And uh, she goes, within the space of like five minutes, she five reasons why she can't do it. Uh, I don't want to be wrong. Uh, I'm not as confident as you. I, don't, I was like, okay, and I counted. Each time she said some um, excuse. excuse that energetically – is blocking the very thing that she wants. Like, people don't realize we are vibrational beings first before we're physical. Mm-hmm. We're spirit first, right? right? 
Like we've, if I drop dead here, my body goes cold, the spirit's gone. So that thing that we can't see and quantify is real. The thing that keeps our blood warm is our spirit. And so if we vibrate first on the thing that we want, that's the thing that manifests mm -hmm. before it actually happens. Everything in here was a thought. Everything, this paper, this, mm -hmm. this mic, it was a thought. Someone vibrated on that, mm -hmm. and they manifested it. Yep. And so, yes, I run into people that say, I can't, I'm not like you. And in that moment, I just try to encourage them to look at their thinking and yeah. look at their language and mm -hmm. the things that they say that are cross-purposes with the thing that they say that they want. Mm -hmm. And so the more you're aligned with saying the thing that you want, believing that it's true, experiencing it before it actually happens. Mm -hmm. Like if you, any professional, like at any professional golfer, you guys are Koreans, y'all like club <laughs> golf. Yeah. That's your grandmama, <laughs> your daddy. Like before you hit that shot, you visualize it. You see it. You feel it. You have to. Because that's one of the hardest sports in the world, right? Like, and to be really good at that in order to like execute each time, mm. which is nearly impossible to have perfection, you have to see it and feel it and visualize it and only see that. And most people can't be that focused, mm. at least for long periods of time, on the things that they want. So, okay, this is kind of a, a tangent, but that's exactly what happened with me and Tide. Exactly. That's why I fuck with time, you. I, but part of the reason why I, I even I mess with you is because you say to me, like, is that you're, you're consistent. Like, this is what you want, and you continue to... Like, even when I've told you, are you sure you want to do this? And she's like, nope, this is what I'm doing. And I'm mm -hmm. like, right, I got to respect that because you're so focused on that's the thing that you want to manifest. And so when I see people that move like that, that's what I gravitate toward. Mm -hmm. All right, I want to rewind a little bit and go back to Cool Runnings. No, because people first of all, <laughs> first of all I'm sorry, yeah. that movie is... It's, it's like got a cult following, I think. And also, I didn't realize it came out before New York Undercover. I thought they came out after New York Undercover. But, okay, first of all, my kids love it. Good. And um, then their kids are going to love it. And their kids are going to love it. Absolutely. And it's based on a true story, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay, so when you got the role for that movie, what was that like? Bring us back to that. Because um, it was your first major movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool Runnings happened when, um, well, all of this will be in my... One man show Harlem to Hollywood, which mm -hmm. you invited to. Coming up soon. Yeah, February at the Apollo. Now it's February. Yeah. It was supposed to be October 18th, but I've been shooting the series, so. Yeah, um, we're going to get to that. We'll to February. But um, um, Cool Runnings happened when um, I used to be the vice president of City Kids Foundation. Um, well, the short, the, let me try to give you the short version of the long story. And um, how old were you? I was 25, when, your age, mm -hmm. <laughs> when I went to go do that movie. Um, you're 20, no. 27. 27, mm -hmm. he's 25, right. Um, so, I, you know, <clears throat> circling back to what you said at the beginning about I've had this long career, um, the thing that for my career has been really important is the consistency of service of other others, right? So cool run-ins cool runnings happen as a direct result of being in service to um, an organization that I was working at. And so in 1989, this summer of 89, we ran out of money. Um, it was City Kids Foundation, which is right down on Leonard Street in Tribeca. And um, 
I told my boss I would volunteer for the summer because I had a waiter job up at this place called Cafe Luxembourg uptown. And I would volunteer. I'd go to work one day, and there's a sign on the wall for an audition for a film. Now, I would go to auditions, even though I said, like, I, I didn't, I wouldn't pursue acting like I have to get an agent. And yeah. I have to get, mm -hmm. But if I heard about stuff, I would go. Yeah. I auditioned for Fame, didn't get it. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, didn't get mm -hmm. that. Mo Money. They're like, lost. Lots of things <laughs> that I auditioned for back in the day. Wasn't Michael in Fame? Uh, Michael DiLorenzo was mm -hmm. in Fame. So I auditioned <laughs> for things that I never got, like, from just being in theater programs in, in school um, and hearing about them around town. Um, but I go to this audition. I get it. Um, it was a movie called Seriously Fresh. That was 1991. and Sorry, 1989. And um, the guy that wrote the film, named Jamal Joseph, used to be in the Black Panther Party. And he had just gotten out of doing 10 years in prison uh, for his involvement in the Panther Party. Mm. And so this is 89. And... I said, oh, I work with these kids. During Black History Month, I'd love for you to come down and talk about that, because he was 15 when he joined um, the party. And so Jamal came down to City Kids um, and spoke, and everyone loved him so much. We ended up hiring him for our repertory company. And Jamal Joseph is the person who told me about the audition for Cool Runnings, mm -hmm. which was an open call. Wow. And it was being held at SOB downtown. And, oh, my and God. So he calls oh me up gosh. and says, they're doing this movie about the Jamaica bobsled team. You should call this woman Jackie Brown and go audition. And so I did. And it was, um, I went in and did some improv and forgot about it. And two months later, I'm at a meeting at Greenpeace, which used to be down on Broadway by about Spring Street. Um and I'm having a meeting about the whales, literally saving the whales. I got a call, and it's Disney. And they tracked me down because they called my job, and they told them I was at this meeting. They said, you know, you auditioned for this movie two months ago, and um, director saw your tape and wants to meet you and fly you out tomorrow to screen test. Oh, my God. So. What was that like? Um, that was a trip. I mean, I was literally in the middle of the afternoon, literally having a meeting about saving the whales <laughs> and getting a call. What happened to the whales? <laughs> to fly to L.A. And I said to my boss, look, Disney called. They want me to screen test for this movie. She was like, you should go do it. You, you have didn't have to. an agent. You didn't have. No, I didn't. Just, oh, my but God. But I had God, That's baby. crazy. I God. That's mm -hmm. the major agent. <laughs> the, the, the divine orchestrator. Mm -hmm. And so I went and uh, auditioned for that. And that was 91. And then the movie got dropped. Uh, Christmas Eve of 1991, Dawn Steele, who was the producer of the film, she called and said, uh, they're not making the movie. But she's like, I'm going to get this movie made. Originally, it was, um, uh, I think, Touchstone that was doing it. And then it became Buena Vista, or I think vice versa. It was Touchstone first, yeah. And eight months later, they called again and said, you know, there's a new director. Um, and he wants to meet you. And I said, I'm busy. <laughs> I'm recording an album. Leave me alone. I, I did. I was like, y'all not going to, like, fly me out again. Right. And, yeah, I've done know, that. I've done that. And, but they're like, no, no, he really wants to meet you. And so I flew out, and then that's what happened. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's I mean, amazing. 
all of your projects have been so like New York Undercover, like playing a cop who is black, and the other lead, he's I wasn't Hispanic. a black cop. Oh, you weren't. <laughs> I was the white guy. You were the you white guy. guy. <laughs> My no, mistake. what was so iconic about no, that I, show was that it was like the f- it was one of the first shows where there were two leads. It was that the were first. people. It was the first. The that first series ever in the history of television. Where the two leads were two people of color. People of color. And, dramatic and even show. the supporting, dramatic right? Show. And the supporting, right? Yeah. To get renewed past the first season. And honestly, this is why like representation. I'm a is motherfucking so icon. That's bitches. Yo. They don't know. They don't know. They don't know. Motherfucking icon. Yo. Young I, ones. I do know this, and actually, if JK was here, he would totally. That's oh why my he got God. 20, he'd be, 40s he'd be and 50s in the room. No. no, but it's true because like no, he knows. I was he watching that show, and I would watch it because it was people of color, right? right. I'm not necessarily into cop shows, but then of course. It was good too. Yeah, mm-hmm. not, but it was it was and, more and than that. It was like it was it, the, the cop show. Hot, the cop part was like elemental. Really, it was about secondary. young people dealing with issues yeah. that everyone deals with. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. We just happened to be cops, mm-hmm. and, and but the music drove it. The fashion drove it. The New York mm-hmm. drove it. The sweat, like in. The timing, yeah. like there was nothing like yeah. it ever. Ever. And, so, and did you realize this at the time hell when you yeah. were? Because we knew what we were doing. <laughs> hell How did that yeah. feel? How did that feel? What was that? What did that mean to you? Yo, I mean, you know, it was early in my career, right? So mm-hmm. Cool Runnings comes out in the October of '93, and then within five months, I booked like two Miramax films. I did Law and right. Order. I right. did like an AT and T commercial. And I really thought, like, I did Cool Runnings and went back to my job at City Kids. And at the time, City Kids was dope because we were in, we were using the arts and using celebrities to back the voice of young people. Mm-hmm. So we, like, the, the, the sort of motto was whatever the issue is, you could sing it, dance it, paint it, you know, um, videotape it, act it. And so it was all about using the arts to educate and to engage. And so we did that in a n- number of ways from an annual benefit at, like, Carnegie Hall and, you know, or the theater on Broadway or Madison Square Garden and have, like, Michael Bolton or Quincy Jones or De Niro or Demi Moore. Like, people were huge stars in the 80s and the early 90s mm-hmm. back the voice of young people. So that was my non-profit life. I'm flying yeah. around the country, you know, we're doing international trips. It was dope. Like, my, I'm good. Like, I was making $36,000 a year as a 23-year-old in the 90s mm-hmm. with no college degree. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm teaching. I'm, I'm performing. Like, it's it's crazy. I'm on Oprah. We're on Donahue. Mm-hmm. We're doing all this in the you name of. You were making of, impact. Yeah, young already. people. Yeah, and, and we had a, a Saturday morning show with the Muppets. Um, it was called City Kids, and I was a music, co-musical director for that show. Mm-hmm. So I did Cool Runnings and then went back to my job. So yeah. I came back to New York, and I'm in the studio mm-hmm. recording music for a TV show. Yeah, like, it's crazy. Enjoying yeah. life. And then, you know, by then, in order to get um, Cool Runnings, I did the open call. I had to get an agent. And so mm-hmm. when they cast me, they were like, uh, you don't have an agent. Here's a list. And they, it, they happened to be... Um, the first one was a black woman who was at uh, William Morris, and she was on vacation. So I just went down the list. <laughs> and then Ambrosio Mortimer, who was my first agency. Sam Jackson, who I met when I was 16. I, everything at 16, 17. I worked at the Negro Ensemble Company, which is a theater company in New York. And Felicia Rashad worked there. But I met Angela Bassett when I was that age and Sam. Mm-hmm. And so I went to that agency, which was the second one on the list, only because I knew them, mm-hmm. and they had, they were represented by them. And so... 
Um, then once I had an agent, then five months after the movie came out, like yeah, things, things like started that. like clicking. Yeah. And then I was like, well, I guess I'm an actor now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Because when you you were saying that when you were growing up, you didn't necessarily think about like what you could do, what you couldn't do, even if you were seeing people who look like you doing the things you wanted to do. But now you were in a position where you were inspiring other people. Um, were there a student or was there someone who you remember that kind of made you realize like, oh, my gosh, like I am kind of doing it? Yeah, man. I mean, Miss Terrell, who was my the, my fifth grade drama teacher, was uh-huh. the first person to give me a, lead, a, so, a, a solo mm-hmm. uh, in a play. Um, and then, uh, like, I invited her to my plays all the way to high school. Mm. Um, she was one, Miss Donowitz, my... Uh, middle school teach English teacher, who I invited to my thirtieth birthday party. Like she, she's the one I gave my autograph to, and she kept it. Aww. And she was a teacher. Like I used to write poems and leave them on the desk. So as class switched, the next class would see it, and like I'd wait, and they'd read it, and then who wrote, like, and she was like, who did this? And so, but teachers like that, pat off she. And when I went to City High School, which is right down the block mm-hmm. from here. I definitely had teachers that were the ones that were like you. Mm-hmm. You've got something, kid. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. Um, that in, in encouraged me and I stayed in contact with for a long time. And then I had those hater teachers, too. Like one of my, the teacher, the revenge, I had a teacher that literally sat me in a corner with a dunce cap. Do you guys know what a dunce uh, cap no. is? There's, that's uh, a real thing? A dunce cap was a cone-shaped Yo. cap that, that said dunce. No, it was like... Oh no, it was a real thing. So in seventh grade, this Mr. Arias, uh, who was my Spanish teacher, uh, put me in a corner and made a dunce cap oh and God. made me sit wow. there. And this was the teacher who used to tell us we couldn't eat in class and couldn't do this and that. But he was the one eating like Kit Kats oh after God. lunch and like. And so, cut to I'm 20 years old. I'm doing a workshop for teachers on how to teach students. Mm when I worked for the City Kids Foundation. And I have this big teacher standing in a big circle in the library at Manhattan Center for Science and Math up in Harlem. And there's this one person that keeps talking and disrupting the crowd, the group. And I look and I'm like, oh shit, that's Mr. Arias. No! That's my seventh grade Uh -uh. fucking Spanish teacher. I blew up his spot. I was gonna say, did you call him out? I motherfucking ran that Oh my God. I was like, Mr. Arias. Of course he didn't remember me, because now I'm 20. Yeah. Right? And I'm like, you, and I blew, I was like, you're the problem. Like, New York City public education is the problem because teachers like you. Yes. I was like, you were my seventh grade Spanish teacher. Exact same thing you're doing right now, disrupting this group, is what you did. And I told the story. I had two stories like that. Like, I went back and spoke in my junior high school, and uh, I brought, Two of my boys with me, black kid who became a school teacher. I'm so, uh, yeah, teacher. And another guy who became a doctor, Puerto Rican kid. The Puerto Rican kid grew up in a one-bedroom apartment with five brothers and sisters and two parents and, like, a dog up oh on Upper East Side. And he used to want to say he wanted to be a doctor in junior high school. And we had a teacher, another Spanish teacher, was like, you know what, I think you might want to... You know, be a little bit more realistic. And Mm -hmm. he never forgot that shit. And he put himself through school, was a cab driver, and now he's very successful doing what he does. They asked me to come back. I bring him and other dude. And the teacher that told him that shit was now the principal. 
Oh, gosh. And so I'm on stage. I'm like, oh, Mr. Ambrose. <laughs> Adam's here. Do you remember what you told Adam? Mm-hmm. And I told that story. And we got to do that. Yeah, and Dr. Adam. You got to call him yeah. out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You got to blow him up because, yeah. I mean, you know, people will tell you what you can't do. And, I mean, if I say a lot of things, but the thing that I would hope people can leave with and, and, and remember from this interview is that thoughts become things. Mm-hmm. And if we think it, it really will become a thing. Mm-hmm. And if you keep thinking it, it will really, really, really become a thing. And, you know, this is an abundant universe. God is abundant. Love is abundant. All these things are abundant. And if people operate from a place of lack and make excuses on why you can't do things. Like, yeah, there's certain shit you can't do. You can't jump off the side of a building and fly. We know that. Right. But, like, the things that you that are in your heart, they're there for a reason. You know, as long as it's not trying to hurt someone or abuse or take advantage of someone, but there's something that is in your heart that you feel, you know, is calling you to question it, I just think that you have to pursue it and believe it, um, no matter what your parents are telling you, Mm -hmm. no matter what the world is telling you. Um, And I think you got to lead with love. Love is a great lubricant. Mm -hmm. Mm, Yeah. I get a lot of free shit. <laughs> I do. Yeah. No, that's nice. That is nice. So, go ahead. Oh, so when I, I brought up this quote to Julie to maybe guide the conversation with you, and she said you had an even better quote, but um, it was a quote that reminds me after everything that you've said about how Ava DuVernay said it's not about knocking on closed doors, it's about building our own house and having our own door. And you have a quote, apparently. The build your own generator, so when they turn off the power, you still have lights. Yeah. Same idea. So great. Yeah. And in terms of longevity, I think what's so unique about your career is that you've been on camera, and, you know, you've did all of these things that were either, you know, publicly seen or not seen, but um, if you could talk us through being the creator yourself and creating opportunities after having a platform. Can you walk us through that and your process? I, I don't think that it's waiting to after you have a platform. Uh-huh. I think you're st- wherever you are is your platform. Wherever mm-hmm. you, you can always start from wherever you are. Mm-hmm. For me, some of my greatest moments are, you know, knowing when I'm in production, whether it's been web series that I've done or shorts or um, music videos or you know, um, haven't done my feature yet, but plays that tour, mm-hmm. um, bands is, you know, a restaurant, you know, even the real estate. Creating opportunity for people is a beautiful thing, like, for me. Like, mm-hmm. I love to see the relationships and what people bring to the table and how they can cross-pollinate and make the germ of an idea better. Mm-hmm. Like, that's some real powerful shit to me. Um, and I really do get off on that. And so... Um, I don't think you have to wait, like I'm saying, wherever you are. Like, you can you can do that. And so for me, um, I just have always created. It's not, I was writing plays as a kid. I've been writing songs since I could play two chords on a guitar. I was writing poetry. I was writing, you know, I was always creating. I was never um, not in some form of creation of something. Um, and so I just think that, you know, you have to be active. You have to, you know, it's a simple formula. Like, we could talk about a lot of things, but if this podcast is intended to inspire people to pursue their dreams and to make things happen, no matter who you have as a guest, and if they're successful, 
the through line is always going to be the same. People believe it. They go for it. They don't stop. They don't take no for an answer. And the real fly ones are the ones that lead with love. The ones that aren't shady, the ones that keep their word and they follow through, the ones that actually know how to pick up a phone, especially mm-hmm. young ones. Like if you're dealing with people my age or older than you in their 30s, like pick up a phone and call people. It's okay to actually communicate, like especially for millennials and Gen Zers, like rewriting the rules of like etiquette and networking and making shit happen. But human connection is all we have left. So we have all this technology, but one thing we have is how we feel. Mm-hmm. And this very technology is the thing that's intended to connect us that makes us most disconnected. Mm-hmm. And so we have to go back to the primal place of like, okay, if I'm really going to survive, I know that I need you. Like, I need to connect with you so we could, you know, kill this, like, lion or whatever so mm-hmm. we could all eat. Yeah. Um, and that's that's what's missing, you know, and, and, and even more rapidly so. People are not connecting they're in what i call elevator behavior you go in an elevator people don't look at each other you're that close to folks mm. crowded elevator crowded subway you're not looking people looking down at their phone they're walking the streets looking at their phones they're so disconnected and to be someone in my lifetime to see how rapidly that's changed even since 2007 when the first smartphone hit the market so in the last 11 years how the entire world's population has been impacted by this technology at a rate that the telephone didn't do that, like, right. and that was like 50 years, you know, right. around. So whatever that is. What's so impressive to me about you is that you are sort of on this elevated plane because even with any haterade that might be spewed against you, your response is always, I love you. Mm-hmm. Right? Yo, man, like, what else is there? Everything else is bullshit. <laughs> but, like, how did you get to that point? I got shot at 15, man. Like, this is a bullet wound. People tried to kill me. I had a gun put to my head when I was 12 the first time. I don't know any other way to be. Like, I was an abused kid. I've been sexually abused. I've been physically abused. My father used to beat me with these, okay? Mm-hmm. Extension cords. So I was butt naked to bleeding, right? I had a neighbor that put his hands, you know, on me. I had a stranger in Central Park as a kid. So there's been, like, things that could kill a lot of people. But what I've learned is that when you stay in service of other people and not from like a, I have this hole to fill in me and perhaps there was a point in my life where there was some of that, right? Um, but I've just learned that, you know, and I don't look at my life this way, but as a black man in America, right, that has been a working actor since 1993. I'm 50 films in, I'm on my 13th television series. I've done plays and I do corporate trainings and I do music and I do all the I am living all of my dreams and have for a long time one thing that I know is that kindness fucking rules love fucking rules shadiness is some bullshit not keeping your word is some bullshit not being kind to yourself self-doubt how much people like how many people like I can't do this I can't do that you're killing yourself stressing out doubting yourself it's okay, like you were made to be part. If you think about how many drops of water in an ocean, you can't. That's the amount of possibility. How many drops, of, how many grains of sand on the beach? Like, why you and not me? So that's why we could be people of color and talk about, I don't need to see somebody that looks like me doing the shit I wanna do. Because I look like everybody. I don't give a fuck what the outside is. I look like a human being. And I'm part of this whole thing. That is why, how many times have you thought about somebody and they call you or you run into them? 
I was just thinking about you, Bridget. Yes, because we're part of the same shit. And that's love. I'm out. <laughs> I gotta go. All right. right. Sounds good. Thank, thank you, you so much. We're going to do a... Here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. We're going to definitely do a part two. Because <laughs> I didn't even like... <laughs> okay, y'all. So we had to kind of cut that short real quick because Malik is a very busy man. But I really want to thank Malik for spending the time that he did with us. Um, I want to make sure that you all look out for him on the first Wives Club, which is coming up. He's got a leading role on that. Um, and also, I hope you just were inspired by him. You know, he truly believes in living a very um, purpose-filled life. And, you know, I feel very grateful to have him in my life and to support a lot of the initiatives that I've started. And he and I really bonded because we do both believe so much in living a purpose-filled life and really trying to, we both say to each other, well, he said to me first that he's in the give a fuck business. And, you know, I thanked him after the Tide Film Festival and I was like, thank you for, I'm, I said, I'm so glad that we're both in the same business, i.e. the give a fuck business. So, you know, there's so few people like that, um, especially in the entertainment industry. So we really appreciate Malik for coming to $6.99 per pound. Um, follow him on social media. I think all of his tags are Malik Yoba. Um, and also follow $6.99 per pound. Hey yo, it's 6.99 per pound. Podcast.